This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is a conference that explores and celebrates what's happening right now in the world of physical technology. It's an exciting time to work at the blurring boundary between the physical and digital worlds. From internet-connected light bulbs to digitally automated factories, we see software-like abstraction and ubiquitous connectivity transforming and improving the ways we interact with the world around us. As we've worked to assemble the program for Solid 2015, which will take place June 23rd through 25th at Fort Mason in beautiful San Francisco, John and I have met a vast array of inventors, entrepreneurs, artists, engineers, business people, and scientists who are contributing to this revolution on all fronts. We've been consistently captivated as we listen to them talk about what they're working on and what excites them. So we've started dragging a Pelican case full of podcasting gear along on our journey to capture and share some of these conversations with a wider audience. On this episode of the Solid Podcast, John and I sat down with Andy Cavatorta and Jamie Ziegelbaum, two new media artists based in Brooklyn. Andy is a media artist and composer who has worked with numerous clients, perhaps most famously Bjork, to create installations that can only be described as a hybrid between musical instruments and room-scale robots. Jamie works in a variety of digital media and most recently took over the 30,000-square-foot welcome hall at the Design Miami Basel Art Fair during Art Basel in Switzerland with his interactive piece entitled Triangular Series. Let's hear some of their thoughts on what they've been working on lately and how they see technology changing and augmenting human expression. We're recording this episode in, uh, in Brooklyn uh, on Flatbush Avenue at <coughs> Gimlet Media, which... Um, and this is a, a very professional-looking setup. There are, like, egg crates on the ceilings and walls. This is this is the kind of place where I imagine, like, Beyonce records her podcasts. <laughs> yeah, so I agree. Yeah. I bet she's got more foam pyramids in her room, though. Yeah. Oh, probably. Every yeah. room of her house is just foam pyramids. Yeah. Covered in yeah. foam pyramids. Sound isolation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, so we're very grateful to them for, for letting us um, crash their place in Brooklyn to speak with Jamie Ziegelbaum and Andy Cavatorta. Hey guys, howdy! Hello. So, uh, uh, both of you are um, installation artists here in Brooklyn. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, about what you do, Andy. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm a sculptor. I work largely with robotics and with sound. And uh, sometimes that means I'm making large musical instruments for people. Sometimes I'm doing installations. Uh, I'm very happy to have a piece that just opened at MoMA officially yesterday with oh, the Bjork retrospective. Thank you. It's never had a better looking place to be. It's uh, sitting right there in the Gund lobby. Uh, nice, nice. And yeah, you got a named lobby for your installation. Yeah, yeah. I, that was one of my requirements. <laughs> so, <laughs> I actually named it. That, that, so. that a wealthy donor had gone before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Jamie. Oh, and um, I, I make sculpture as well using... Uh, contemporary materials, electronics, software, <clears throat> industrial design materials, and uh, often with interactive and lighting components. Excellent, excellent. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, both of you guys have, have given us a lot of amazing uh, thoughts for things to do at Solid. Uh, David and I visited you back in August and had great conversations about mm -hmm. sort of where we should focus the conference and the and the program. Um, Andy is uh, Andy is speaking at Solid. What, what's your what's your talk about? Oh, I should go back and remember what I'm talking about. I do, <laughs> I do a lot of lectures these days. Uh, let's see. I will be speaking mostly about uh, sound and machinery and how we make meaning with sound and what the new opportunities are. 
Uh, but it actually, that can, if you let me talk long enough, that turns into a lens through which you can see most of the rest of the world, like any good topic. Oh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> in, in 40 minutes, can you get to the rest of the world? Uh, no, no, but that's kind of the fun of it. I'll just pick my favorite topics. Uh, okay. Good. Well, uh, speaking of that, um, one thing that we wanted to do with this podcast, because Jamie and Andy are, are such great inspirational friends of ours, um, we figured that we would just come in and have them bring a topic of something that they thought was very interesting that they've seen in the past month and and discuss it, because we're interested in seeing how things look through this lens. So what, uh, what, what do you guys got? What have you seen that's been interesting to you in the past month? Andy, tell us about something cool. Uh, let's see. Maybe I'm showing my age here, but uh, it's been just recently, this past six months or so, and increasingly so that I'm saying, oh, yeah, I get these reminders. Like, we're actually really in the future now. Uh, a month ago, I was speaking with a guy that I met. Uh, he was part of a Turkish political party that had gotten banned uh, hmm. because they were a little bit too radical. They were sort of a bit of a threat. Uh and so they completely disbanded and took the exact same people and ideas and reformed as a reality TV show in Turkey. What? Wow. <laughs> and I was like, wow. oh, it's the future. Right. I keep yeah, having yeah, to remember. Yeah. 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 I was in the lobby at MoMA the other day, and I'm just looking out across the sea of people all looking at their phones. I mean, we all talk about this, but it keeps stunning me still. Maybe yeah. it's because I'm a hermit and I'm kind of either in my <laughs> workshop or at home all the time, and I go outside and everyone's walking around looking at a little rectangle. Um but largely, it's just been that over and over. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's sort of like everything is sort of fungible between yes. <laughs> some some something that's real and something that's not. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the continuum look like between discrete, you know, po political party to reforming as as a, as a reality television show? It I looks mean, very smooth. It <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know, what's really the difference anymore in yeah. a sense, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, any any type of um, messaging or posturing or or yeah. Uh, Fake know, emotional reactions, or, right, yeah, right. yeah. It's just one yeah, big in, panopticon, really. Right. In 2012, when there were like uh, there was a, a Republican, you know, primary debate every uh, every week or something for for you know 12 weeks in a row, and it was just like you know uh, someone was getting voted off the island at the end of every <laughs> every debate. Right. There were like uh -huh. 14 people standing up on stage in the beginning, and by the end it was like three people, and and there were like you know you even had the the. Um, you know, like with like with uh, TV series, you have the people doing podcasts like afterwards ago, like, oh, you know, what did what did you think of like the Rick Perry plot line in that in that debate? It's yeah. a very natural. It's a very natural, uh, natural transition. I think sort of it was always gamified, but uh, it's just become a lot more fun to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so are they doing much with like, uh, you know, are they are they communicating with their constituents, you know, from inside of the show? Like, I mean, is there an element where they're on on Twitter and, and on social media channels as well? Uh, you know, I don't know the follow-up story. I should go in and find out some more. Uh, but they took, like, the entire... So there, there was a political party mm -hmm. and with multiple players and seeking elections and all this, and they took that entire thing and translated it somehow into an actual on-the-air reality show. Uh, yes. Now that I've opened up the subject, I'm afraid I can't tell you a whole lot more. <laughs> Let's just speculate. This is simply what this man was. Yes. Let's just yeah, make yeah. some. Can we open up the the court to like outrageous speculation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then um, uh, eventually we'll close this conversation with uh, lamentations along the lines of like the world we live in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Excellent. How about in in um, uh, in the world of like. Uh, well, in the world of, of, of installations of musical instruments, 
Um, what are you What are you interested in these days? What are you coming across? Uh, let's see. Music as an installation form is always really challenging, uh, largely because it's got this narrative component. There's this mm. thing that happens with the time. Well, let me see. I guess I'm going to back up for just a second. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. Yeah, if you uh, want to sound is, fix it in post. Yeah. Working with music and working with sound is so different uh, from working with visual components. I think it's because with the visual components, we're very, very satisfied looking at things that we don't think of as being true. Like we can just mm. consider the idea and hold it in our heads or be entertained by it. Uh, but when it comes to how we make meaning with sound, I think a lot of it, it's very important for us that it seemed to ring true or else or else it's sort of cast off into, you know, just mm. the, the crap that we don't like to hear. That it works within the context of music that people have heard before and that and systems that people know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that part's true. I just think it's it's uh, it's interesting the challenges that you run into when you start to try to do this in a gallery, for instance, mm. uh, because now you need to hold somebody's attention for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, or mm-hmm. if you put it on stage in particular, which is what I end up doing more often than not, uh, now, now now the this iPhones needs, are coming out. <laughs> now it needs to be compelling for forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, instead of just for like the thirty second glance you would do in a gallery. Right, right, uh, right. Interesting. Yeah. So, so like. You know, do you do you ever do, do you build installations that work outside of the kind of conventional like twelve uh, tones to an octave approach? Do you do like eighteen tone music that's totally different from what any Westerner has ever heard before, or does that just completely fall flat because it goes outside of people's frame of understanding? I think more and more people here. Uh over the past few centuries, the intervals and the harmonies that we consider to be consonant has increased, just as a weird cultural artifact. Mm. Uh, things that are consonant to us now, you know, we would not have considered consonant 300 years ago. Mm. Uh, back at MIT, at the Media Lab, I did make a 31-tone instrument, and I learned, I already knew ahead of time why we don't use 31-tone equal temperament. <laughs> it actually sounds fantastic, but it's too many notes. Huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just uh-huh. too many notes per octave. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I do, because it's physical, uh, everything I don't really do much with, like, let's say, synthesis yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or samples or things like that. The work that I do is very much about finding different sound-producing natural phenomena uh, that can be harnessed to create mm-hmm. meaning with sound or to create uh, music. Mm-hmm. We human beings have been kind of amazingly thorough in harnessing everything that we possibly could so far for music. But there have been different phenomena that take too much precision or too much energy uh, and are just now becoming available. Hmm. So in a way, uh, I end up thinking that the stuff that I do is a lot more in the tradition of a pipe organ than it is in the tradition of like a little Arduino beatbox right, uh, right, or right. something like that. Uh, yeah. What was your original question? <laughs> yeah. Like, can you, you know, so... Uh, um, in college, I had this professor named Easley Blackwood, which uh-huh. is an amazing name. That is. Um, and uh, who composed mm. in uh, systems other than 12-tone scales. Ah, yes. And um, he did it all through synthesizers. This was like in the 70s, and it involved hardwiring synthesizers so that they could produce um, you know, uh, these you know, 17-note, 13-note, 27-note scales or whatever. And the, the thing that struck me, um, taking his class on tuning, uh, where he played back some of these recordings, was that um, he was... He had taken this entire approach that involved breaking down the conventional um, framework of music, but then at the end of it would say, like, the 27 notes does not sound very good. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, like, at at the end, you you still come to this sort of absolutist, uh, you know, um, 
subjective appraisal that, like, that sounds good. This <laughs> does not. It's funny, though, that there's malleability in there that we don't expect. Uh, it's a thing I ran into when I first started making physical musical instruments. And you think, uh, well, what will I tune it to? Well, I'll tune it to the notes. You get these mm -hmm. like linear classification systems when you're a kid. Like, these are the numbers. These are the colors. These are the letters. These, these are the, are the notes. notes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then later on, you learn that like that's actually all completely fudged. 12 tone equal temperament mm -hmm. is actually great. It's a big compromise. Uh, we should keep it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are plenty of instruments that actually aren't even tuned in 12 tone equal temperament. Like the trumpet isn't tuned in 12 tone. Equal the piano, which had got everybody in Europe tuning to 12 tone equal temperament because you couldn't retune the piano. Everybody mm -hmm. had to tune mm -hmm. to it. Even that's not tuned in 12 tone equal temperament. It uses stretched tuning. The uh, the higher pitches are tuned higher, hmm. and the lower pitches, lower strings, are tuned lower so that they're overtones, so their harmonics will be in tune, but the hmm. fundamentals are, are made to be out of tune. Just it sounds it's more important for the harmonics to be in tune than for the, the fundamental yeah, yeah. pitch itself. Three octaves below, key, below C, the, the below middle C, the, uh, uh, the fundamental of, of a piano note is almost inaudible, right? You're just mm -hmm. mostly hearing overtones. You're mostly hearing, yeah, it's true. Uh, and so for a lot of the stuff that I do, the overtone series ends up being involved uh, in some way or another. Yeah. yeah. Do, uh, do you think that comes out of like the thing that I always I find unique about your work is the way that you're having the intersection of, of digital processes, robotics, sculpture, and then you know, resonant physical bodies and in particularly the kind of control side of that, which most people think about digital music and its synthesis, but you're using digital processes to resonate physical things. And do you think that that, like this whole discussion that you've just been having, um, thinking about the way that the tones work, is that does that change based on the materials, the way that you make instruments? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah uh, so, so what sort of materials do you use? Uh, let's see. It depends. There's when it comes down to it, there's vibrating columns of air, uh, vibrating strings. Those two are easy, and to get those working, uh, so you start with the fundamental elements, air. <laughs> start with, with air and, and how we're going to move it. Uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. But there's an awful lot of history to this spruce tone wood that everybody huh. uses to make the uh, the fronts of guitars or a lot of other string instruments. Uh, sounds fantastic. Sounds better than than any of the other woods. So I end up using quite a bit of that just to make resonators. Hmm. Uh, what makes a wood sound good? Uh, you know, physically, I don't know exactly what it is. The spruce tone wood I always think of as being a little bit like fiber optic cable. You mm. can hold a long, like, meter-long sheet of it the long way against your ear and touch it way out on the other end, and it sounds like it's right next to your ear. The sound huh. travels right up the length of it. It's kind of remarkable. It's a weird little trick. But it doesn't do it on the short end? It, it only does it, like, along the grain? It does it along the grain. Wow. Yeah, so the sound transmits evenly across the entire face of the wood. Uh, and it's very, very tightly grained. So That's it's kind, so cool. of, kind of amazing that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody discovered that. I love th this sort of thing shows up the difference between design and technology so well that, uh, like, if there'd never been some such thing as a violin. Uh, and some of you just thought of it today, and you're like a fantastic engineer, you've got all this CAD processes, you'd have a hard time making a violin anywhere near as good, even with all of this technology available, as what has evolved, just because it's had, mm. you know, you look at a great violin, it's, it's wood, mm -hmm. it's glue, mm -hmm. it's uh, lacquer, <laughs> uh, it's stuff that we've had for hundreds of years, uh, 
but its design process has it's had such a fine evolution. Uh, mm-hmm. In a way, I like it when you come across these things where like it's such an elevated thing, but it's not about the level of technology. It's about the level of design, like generations of care and sensitivity. Right, right, right. Just uh, artisanship going mm-hmm. into it for ages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. When people didn't have iPhones to distract them to, <laughs> in the evenings, they could spend their spend their whole time being a luthier and building violins. Yeah, or sitting at home playing violin. I think that's a thing that we don't really do so much anymore, sitting around at night playing music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you uh, come across sometimes like sheet music from the late 19th century, and it's music you've never, you know, that had a popular moment, but that, um, you, you know, you read that this was the most popular song in <laughs> all of Victorian England mm-hmm. between 1875 and 1880, and it sold... You know, a million copies, and uh, and made the now forgotten composer very, very rich, because that was the yeah that was evening entertainment was having like a spinet piano in your in your living room and and getting your sister to uh, you know to sing a, a song published on sheet music. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like I've probably sidestepped all of these questions so far. But, uh, <laughs> well, Jamie had a really good one. So, like, how do you yeah how do you approach this uh, uh, this combination then of digital? Um, activation and uh, physical, old school, um, just acoustic sound. Acoustics. Uh, well, let's see. I guess there's. This all started uh, back when I first started writing software, back during the very first boom. Uh, and after about a year of making things happen on screens, which was pretty exciting, uh, I started really wanting all this stuff to have a life of its own, to start existing out in physical space. So I would go home. Uh, Instead of being social, I'd go home and build robots at night. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and I started to suspect in the Boston and Cambridge area uh, that there were lots of these night robots getting built by individual people <laughs> night who robots. might not be telling I who might not that. be telling their friends yeah, yeah, yeah. that this is what they're doing. Uh, but th- now the code now the code seems to be coming to life. This is much more interesting that you can make it go around and do stuff in your physical space. After I had a few of these, uh, I would show them to my friends, and all of them thought that the most obvious thing to do with this was to make these robots fight each other. <laughs> <laughs> naturally, naturally. Naturally. Yeah. But uh, as it turns out, uh, I was much more interested in how they sounded. So it sort of started that Having way. them play music together instead of fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would start That's to program a, yeah. them to be like, oh, could, could I make this move around so that it sounds like this is starting to get a great rhythm. You can almost make pitches with this one. And then I started extending it from there. So a lot of it did come just like from writing software in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but now I'm, it's, those early days in that first boom were really exciting because the web was just emerging and there was an awful lot of highfalutin talk about everything that it was going to be. We knew it was going to be huge. And we also knew that we couldn't exactly predict what it would be when it emerged. And it's totally true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like a very similar thing is happening right now with robotic control of the physical world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that makes it just a very exciting space to be working in. Yeah. Uh, so I think a lot about motion control, how we think about motion control, and how we can sort of bump it up a couple levels of abstraction so that we're no longer having to think so much about tuning PID loops and right, right, <laughs> voltages right. and things like that. And we can start to think about gestures and synchrony and reflex and mm-hmm. uh, and concepts like that, and so that it's just it's a more seamless translation from like abstract software idea to physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think so. Uh, when I was doing research just on patents a while back, I was looking at patents from oh Thaddeus Cahill's Telharmonium, the first big electronic musical instrument made here in New York City. Uh, was this like a um, uh, one of those sort of self-contained like bands in a cabinet that would play no, pneumatic, no. pneumatic tubes or? 
1899, Thaddeus Cahill came up with this instrument uh, called the Telharmonium. It took up an entire building. It was just a big collection of dynamos generating electricity at different musical frequencies. Uh, and it, it leveraged that newfangled invention, the telephone. It was the first musical... Uh, the first streaming music service. What? So you would call up the operator and ask to be connected to the Telharmonium if you were a subscriber, and then you just oh, hang the awesome. receiver down, <laughs> and this weird, reedy, sine wavy music would come out of your receiver. There are no recordings existing because recording technology was not really existing ambiently at the time. Uh -huh. so, so we you had would, streaming before we had recording? We did. <laughs> so you go to Very Tel modern. <laughs> <laughs> you could go to Telharmonium Hall in Midtown and... Uh, listen to the music at Telharmonium Hall. It would be piped in there. But the patents for this show like a certain, when you needed to make an inductor, uh -huh. it would be like a certain size of iron in these dimensions and a certain number of twists of a certain gauge of copper wire. He couldn't just say an inductor of this value. Right, right, right. That didn't exist. Right. Well. And then uh, in the 40s, I guess it was, when the Hammond organ was being invented, which is really like a tiny Telharmonium, mm -hmm. uh, he could just specify I values for inductors. Mm -hmm. And then by the time Moog was putting together his patents, he would just have big functional blocks where he'd say, mm -hmm. this is a voltage-controlled oscillator, and we don't really need to talk about This is a filter. Inductors. Yeah. Right, yeah, and yeah, what's yeah. in there. And I think that we're sort of on the cusp of making one of these abstract moves right now, sort huh. of a, uh, raising the level of abstraction in robot control, yeah. largely just because uh, computing power has become so affordable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most of what we've been doing so far has been based on the high expense of computing power. Right. It's not really true anymore. This is a point that uh, Carl Bass made at, uh, in his talk at Solid last year, that one second of computing time on a thousand computers is now the same price as a thousand seconds of computing time on one computer. Hmm. Um, you know, if you use a giant pool of Amazon machines or something, you can, um, you can do things instantaneously that you would have had sort of grind along. Hmm. You know, you can use arbitrarily large amounts of data, arbitrarily large amounts of intelligence to do anything you want, as long as it's web-connected, which, of course, not all the robots are. Mm. But that seems to be the direction, right? And um, you know, One of the theories behind Solid is sort of this idea that, like, you know, we all, we all love the robotics. We love the physical aspects of this. But, but the energy behind the movement is largely that um, hardware is a way to take, the, take online intelligence and move it into the physical world in some, in some way. And that's mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're what you're doing here. Yeah, it, well, it's, so it's do you, funny. Do you Go think ahead. of yourself as working in software that's then like manifested physically, or do you do you think of yourself as working in the in the physical instruments? Uh, I end up needing to be up to my elbows in both, uh -huh. uh, and they do end up just feeling like part of the same process. The more I do it. Uh, much like you know the question of do you work uh, in interface design or do you work in software? Well, yes, yeah, right. <laughs> the answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but more and more, it is also showing up to me that this is sort of the new, really interesting frontier. Is this? We're trying to figure out how we're going to we're trying to figure out how we're going to bridge this, this gap this, between the the virtual and the physical. Yeah, uh, abstraction gap. And, well, it forces us to divide our attention so much of the time. Just like you're asking now, like, which, which one do you work in? Mm -hmm. uh, we really, really want these two things to just be folded together as, some, as if it's some kind of false dichotomy, and we look back on it and wonder why we ever thought they were two separate things. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. all of the solutions that I see for it are so weird, none of us actually really, I think, want to accept them. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, I don't want to wear Google Glass 24-7. I don't want a brain implant. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but you want some of the benefits that those things afford. But. I, I want all of that information freely available and flowing in my uh, sensorium mm-hmm. as I walk what, around what the world. port you connect it to. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I was, I was kind of imagining as I was falling asleep last night, um, we, our human culture is kind of like just this fire that's um, transforming and metabolizing everything in our path, right? And, and one of the ways that manifests now is through these digital digital transformations of things in the world and uh, falling from your, your this, this this interesting abstract quandary between digital virtual experiences and physical experiences with materiality it's kind of like you know the process of technology can be considered one where human beings take things that we do and we externalize it in the world around us and we keep digging deeper at first it was simple things like make our arms longer with hose you know and now we're getting to this point where we're taking big blocks of abstraction out of our minds and trying to place it into the world and we don't know what they are anymore you know it's like mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like like we don't understand consciousness we don't understand um human motivation or yeah. any of these things we're at this yeah. point where you can so we've we've been taking things that are more and more fundamental and yeah. manifesting them yeah. and now we're at this level where we're getting so fundamental that it's beyond our understanding yeah, I, I, that's a weird way to think about this whole, you know, t- uh, digital progress that we're in right now. But in, in a sense, it's an it, interesting lens. Yeah. On it. yeah. So, Jamie, what's a cool thing you've seen in the last book? Um, actually, fits right in with what we were just talking about. Um, my, I'm kind of always fascinated by my main fascination is, is is the human body and the built environment and technology and how those two things are the same and extend and intersect with each other. And so, you know, I was I was. Um, you know, reading about CRISPR lately, I don't know if you've read about mm-hmm. that and be able to do in vivo, you know, gene replacements and uh, thinking about super intelligence. I was reading um, what's his name's book, uh, this super intelligence, um, the English guy. Anyways, uh, <laughs> anyways, if only we had super intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. Then I can remember. But like, it, it brings me back to like, like there's this idea that we're going to develop these. Um, these super intelligent machines, right? But this has been the idea behind um, behind computer science since a, a long time ago. You know, McCarthy and Minsky back in the day, and MIT, and you know, they're coming up with this whole idea. And there was this big debate between um, whether or not we should try and make this butler that can do all of our stuff, or more like an Engelbart idea of like we should be using computers to extend the human body in new ways. And it's so funny that it's continued to play out, yet they're like, uh, it's a really false dichotomy in, in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, at, at one time, there's so much interest in, in super intelligence, artificial intelligence, yet we have no visible pathway between the AI systems, the narrow AI systems that we've developed now and anything like a human brain because we don't understand a human brain. And I don't even think we know what we want it to look like. We have no idea what it, what it would be like. I mean, like, yeah. cause it would be, it would suck to interact with an artificial intelligence that's, you know, 20 million times smarter than we are and communicate on the same level of human because you just feel like you're talking to someone who's way smarter than you all the time and can do everything. Well, so well, I don't even know what I want the interface to a, to a, to an artificial intelligence to look like. You know, I mean, the, you mean the the worry there is that there's you know there's no interface. There's just death for everyone else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. That's the interface. We're all dead. We're um, all dead. Is the interface. Um, but I, I'm mentioning all this to get to uh, this video artist that I saw recently. Um, and it's all that's all very orthogonal, but maybe we'll clarify as I talk more. Um, I gave a talk at, at Lisa recently, which is this event, Leaders in Software and Art in New York. And one of the other speakers was Katie Torn, and she does these 
these video pieces where she does she merges live video and CG and she does camera tracking so that they're kind of the same and they're all about the body and so her body is in it and then it becomes overlaid with with digital forms and it it, it really struck me in a way because I guess my work I'm always looking at the the physical material things around us that we touch and interact with and I don't touch pixels that much you know I touch mm-hmm. them as maybe one single pixel like in one of my art but not not constructing lots of images from pixel though that's changed a bit but it was the same I felt like it was this one of the same things the same kind of idea that I've been trying to get at by making these these physical things is that the body the technology is more like a phenotype than it is like a um like an external agency mm-hmm. and to kind of close the loop on the last thing I was talking about if you look back through the progress of, of computer and digital uh, progress, the thing that has pushed us so far forward has been expanding the bandwidth of the interface between us and the machine world. Mm. It hasn't been creating intelligences in other places. It's been by expanding ourselves. Uh, Interesting. So, so creating, um, you know, more a, a wider surface on which we interact with this intelligence. Yeah, more. So it's not just. It's not just. It's already gone from. Um, being through like a computer that you sit in front of at your desk to being through a computer that's available anywhere. And it's increasingly, you know, through, uh, you know, to be trivial, like light switches or um, or your home appliances or, uh, you know, a driverless car mm. or something like that. Yeah. Or like I think what Andy was saying before, we're, we're all everyone has these phones in our hands all the time. This is something that's mundane now and, and well noted in, in the media all the time. And you walk around, you see everybody looking at their phones. But th- that's quite a profound thing. It's mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, so much of our experience as human beings is is more and more mediated by digital systems that we've created, which are now extensions of our own minds and their extensions, mm-hmm. extensions of our communications and understanding of each other. So, so tell us about your work and how this figures in. So my work is kind of, I guess, motivated by just this understanding what that is you know communication mm-hmm. it's funny when i studied looking back things often take a more clarified form than when you're in progress so i um, always wanted to go to film school and then i ended up going to uh, tufts and i studied neuroscience and then i dropped out and i was a carpenter and a laborer and then i went back and i studied human computer interaction and um was trying to invent new types of computers much in the media lab where i met andy and david and uh you know was making these tangible interfaces and at a certain point i looked back and i was like you know and I was also, you know, always kind of um, amateur armchair physicist uh, mm-hmm. with very little actual knowledge to back that up. That's a good, a good, a good field to be an armchair uh, yeah. practitioner in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> armchair uh, particle physicist. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, I look back and I realize that the real motivating thread that, that ties it all together is communication. It's it's trying to. When I was studying neuroscience, I was fascinated by consciousness. When I was, you know, studying interface, I was fascinated by you know how to because they suck. You know, look at interfaces and mm-hmm. all almost all of them suck. Uh, so because I when I'm working with wood or when I'm you know with another human person, uh, it was such a more capable thing. The human hand is a perfect example. It's like the most articulate, beautiful, eloquent shape responsible for the entire, you know, uh, human universe that we've created, right? We've formed everything through these hands. Yet in a computer, a standard one with a regular mouse desktop, it is like the most destructive use of the hand. It's this draconian mm-hmm. compression of the hand into a single point. Um, and this is just, you know, highlights how awful interfaces are. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a it, it. It forces the subtlety and nuance of the of humans into something that's uh, um, uh, much yeah. more limited, much more 
we're, we're doing what the computers want us to do rather than having the computers do what we want to do. And that's, I mean, just look at any terminology around computer interfaces, input and output are the wrong ones, right? Uh -huh. We're looking uh -huh. from the computer perspective. It's about human <laughs> expression and intent. It's not about like what bitstream is on what channel, you know? <laughs> right, 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 um, right. So, so in my work, like I, I I'm, trying to understand, I think I make art to understand the world, you know, uh, there's mm -hmm. some artists that are expressing their own, their selves, and, and that's fine. I find personality to be kind of boring, like mm -hmm. we've all got mm -hmm. one, like I've heard, I've seen it, I've seen him, <laughs> you know, like, speak for yourself, <laughs> except for Andy. Yeah. Uh, so, but I'm really fascinated with this crazy world we're in and trying to understand it. And so in my, in my work, I take the materials from contemporary experience, consumer electronics and, and display systems and, and software and try and push it into edge states, things that reveal its um, its nature in a different way. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that the, the only thing that isn't going away about our interactions between computers and ourselves is like the actual physical size of our bodies and our hands and everything, right? Mm -hmm. You like read the the Mark Weiser papers and talks about how in the future all computer interfaces are basically going to be pads, tabs, and boards. We're going to have hmm. screens. It's just it's just based on screen size, based on the type of interaction you want to have because that's the link, you know. So it's like you know we've got a tab size thing that's the size of a post-it note that's like the size of your hand, but we'll also have pads which are slightly larger than that for two hands, and then also boards if you want to share things with other people, you know, that's like person human scale things. And if all the other intelligence and everything is abstracted into the cloud, I mean, really, the only limitation on the type of interface that we have to the system is, is like the Our size bodies. of ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, mm. I feel like I'm oh, sorry. I, I feel like um, that Wiser was one of the most prescient, you know, um, scientists of, of the 20th century. In, in some ways, is not only did he really foresee phones and laptops and, and other things, but he. Um, you know, the notion of calm computing, uh, I think, is m most profound, like, insight that, you know, the computer systems really just need to be like forests. And uh, that sounds strange, but they do. And eventually they will be. Uh, Andy, we're mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Oh, I was just yeah. going to point out, uh, your point about the hand, I think, is uh, such a strong one. Uh, sometimes people have asked me why I don't develop new types of interfaces because I see a lot of people who just sort of they work on new types of electronic interfaces right, to right. interface with Max MSP or whatever. Mm. Uh, yeah, here's and, a new interface that like uses your toes in a special sock to, you know... Something like yeah, that. Yeah, drive a synthesizer. <laughs> and, and I never actually want to say anything negative to people who are doing these experiments, so I don't. Uh, but what I always think is if you want to see a really, really great interface, you should pick up a violin. Hmm. Like you want like the exp mm -hmm. and it's because of how well it uses our hands. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, nothing that you're going to do with pushing buttons is going to compare to this. And you could use this as your example. Uh -huh. Anyway, I well, saw well, well connection. I'm that, gonna... that um. So John Underkoffler, good friend and uh, mentor. You know, he would always talk about interfaces like you never think of somebody getting good at the mouse you know yeah, yeah it's yeah. like wow that guy's, that <laughs> guy's <laughs> great at using the mouse right yeah. oh man look at look at that it's like you should ask my 360 no scope <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but like why can't interfaces be like a guitar you know like yeah, yeah, like yeah. why can't we reach virtuoso computer interface usage huh. well that's what that's one thing. i mean that's that's what's really exciting about a lot of the things that are happening right now in the internet of things is that yeah. um 
you know, your, your interfaces are being abstract into the natural affordances of these objects that we've had around us for a while. So it's like, yeah, it's cool that we can pull out our phones to remotely unlock our front door or something like that. But I mean, the next step when we're getting there is just having doorknobs that know who you are when you grab them and it locks or unlocks based on, you know, if it knows who you are. And then you just don't have to think about pleasing some kind of computer system. You know, you just live your life in the way that you want to do it. Um, and the computers figure out what you want to be doing and, and help you along with that. And I think yeah. that's kind of the next stage. Yeah, part of the dream of the Internet of Things is like less interface, not more, yeah. in a way. Right, or, or you know, more invisible interface. Like, just, just everything everything should just work better. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Which, you know what I mean? I mean, like, you, you shouldn't notice it. Like, we shouldn't, we probably won't notice things getting better. I mean, I didn't notice the transition from, from not having a mobile device in my pocket all the time to having a mobile device in my pocket all the time. But right. I can think back to the time that I didn't, and I think about how completely different that my life was. Yeah, this, you never you never think of yourself as living in a benighted era before yeah. the whatever. Uh, no. Andy does. <laughs> but but, if, but yeah. if you had to go back, yeah. like when you suddenly don't have your phone, it's when you feel it. I think it's been remarkable uh, Having seen, you know, having been an adult before the web existed, for instance, uh, seeing this gigantic change and what it's done, uh, not just on superficial levels, but on really fairly deep cultural levels to the world around us, all these changes, there's been no big backlash against these enormous changes. We, this is a thing that we've all used to give ourselves things that we wanted all the time, mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. we didn't really know it until we could put a name on them or make them somehow concrete. Uh, but, but if you try to turn that around and go backwards and go the other way, then you really, really feel it. Mm -hmm, like you've mm -hmm. noticed, you get you get used to a nice feature like two-finger scrolling or something on your computer. Right, right, and right. You go to a computer. That, that's a small example. No, uh, but, but it's one that completely you're, – you're absolutely right. Because it's – a lot of these interface um, uh, developments are things that you just use all the time. And they are the uh, – these interfaces are the things that stand between you and some of the most constant uh, and desirable things – in your life, right? Access to information, the ability to, you know, move through your work to to um, you know move from idea to expression seamlessly. Um, and I flip out every time I I lose two finger scrolling. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's almost yeah. embarrassing. Well, and, and it, it this whole it it, it um <laughs> it's so important as we transform everything into these interfaces and digital systems that we we consider them in a way, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's one path of um you know which actually doesn't truly exist of like the more efficient, more efficient like interface that isn't there. You know, it's a socially constructed thing, mm -hmm. and without you know philosophers grappling with the question artists making into weird sculptures and and musicians singing about it like we're not going to understand because um as you make your doorknob do what you want it to do and you make your car do what it wants to do they're making the decisions for it. we're going to be we're putting more and more decisions into the world mm -hmm. we're embedding the world with our values and we have mm -hmm. to understand what mm -hmm. they are because once they're out once they're in there it's will be pushed by them again. Yeah, yeah. So. Driverless cars are an interesting yeah. way to think about this, right? Yeah. Because you wouldn't necessarily design a new transportation system from scratch that involves cars driving around the way that we drive cars around. Right. But you have to like develop the first few generations of driverless cars to do exactly what humans are taught to do in driver ed. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you have stop signs and you stop at stop signs and you let people merge and you do all of this stuff um, that was developed for uh, an earlier time with less kind of um, collective intelligence when, you know, there's no central dispatcher, no ability to have a central dispatcher. Uh, such a thing would have been totally infeasible. 
now we, we live in an environment where you can imagine two generations of driverless cars from now. Um, everyone is talking to a central dispatcher that can like that can, yeah. um, uh, you know, decide who gets highway bandwidth and and when and how and and price it appropriately and move everyone through it seamlessly. But for a while, it's going to be this awkward thing where you have computers driving cars just like mm. humans drive cars. And also, I mean, in the future, yeah. the term driverless car is going to be weird, too, because people are going to be like, what is a driver? <laughs> it's like a horseless carriage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah, oh, it's yeah. like our computers used to be people that crunch numbers, you know, like <laughs> right, drivers right, right, in the right. future is going to yeah. be like a, the human, guy. a humanless computer. Yeah, right. <laughs> a humanless computer. Um, the, the, uh, it's kind of like this bus driver effect, you know, like you, you the bus stop dilemma. You're sitting at the bus stop, takes you 10 minutes to get walk home the bus normally comes in three minutes but then let's say 10 minutes then you still stay or not yeah with all these um infrastructural systems we've built like the highway system etc um as we want to change it we're already stuck in this you know you know economic loop and uh like with screens like i don't want blue light pulsing into my eyes all the time um Mm -hmm. yet we've put so much time into the um, liquid crystal and, and and other OLED and all these screen pathways that use light as backlights, using reflective displays would be so much better. Um, mm-hmm. Yet yeah. that has not, I mean, it's not, it's possible. It just needs the work. But with all these other systems, it's hard to get that started, I guess. Yeah. Uh, one concern that I have as we talk uh, more and more about living in this combination of the virtual and physical worlds simultaneously Uh, embedding all of this intelligence, all of this activity uh, into objects ends up consuming more and more power. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that I want everything in my house that did not previously eat batteries or electricity to suddenly be eating power. Uh, And also, there's a danger that we're going to make the virtual world prettier and prettier while we make, while we devastate the physical world around us in order Mm -hmm. to pay for it. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys mm-hmm. have any particular thoughts about this. I think that that particular system dynamic is, is almost inevitable yeah. with what we're heading towards right now. Well, I think there's I think there's a counter um, a counter movement that's almost like a fetishization of beautifully made physical objects, right? True. And people like I, and partly we owe it to Apple because they made beautiful consumer electronics at a level of craftsmanship that mm-hmm. that no consumer electronics had ever had before the iPhone. But, um, you know, you, you hear people um, taking like a, uh, you know, a beautifully made, um, you know, stapler and going like, wow, look at the machining on this. Yeah. Right. It's it's you kind of um, it, it makes you step back and enjoy the, the, the physical objects for that. I'm hopeful. But I also agree with you that this this risks kind of um, making it easier to to separate ourselves aesthetically from problems rather than dealing with them. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, if the listeners want to find you, where can they where can they go? You can find me in New York. Great. We'll put the uh, URL for your website in the notes that accompany this episode of the podcast. Great. And uh, if you find Jamie, I'm I'm usually not far away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you Excellent. can find me at com. Excellent. And me at jamiezigglebaum.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jamie. Andy, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you, thank guys. Thank you, too, guys. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of The Solid Podcast. For links related to this week's podcast episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. We're looking forward to hosting The Dervishes, one of Andy's robotic musical installations at Solid. He'll also be giving a talk entitled Music, Machines, and Meaning as well. You can find more information about Jamie's work by visiting midnightcommercial.com. 
We're holding the 2015 Solid Conference at Fort Mason in San Francisco from June 23 to June 25. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit solidcon.com. I'm David Craner. And I'm John Bruner. See you at Solid. <laughs>